Today's reading is Psalm 27. You'll find it on page 460 of the Bibles in your pew, or you may read along on the screen behind us. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, if it is they who stumble and fall, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is God's word. Amen. It was good to be away. It's great to be back. Karen and I want to thank you for your thoughtfulness and giving us the three months sabbatical. Uh, I used most of the days, half a day, with the Lord, just growing in Him, uh, learning from Him, preparing myself for, for further ministry here. Then I was able to spend a lot of time doing house projects that I've never had time for. And to build relationships, deepen them in the neighborhood, friends, and of course help out family as my son moved into our neighborhood. And we thank you for that. We thank you for your financial gift, which we originally intended to use to help, uh, help us travel, but... Uh, those plans never worked out, so we still thank you for those as they're helping uh, meet the additional costs we have. But most of all, we thank you for your prayers, for your support, for your meals, and for your love uh, in light of Karen's uh, diagnosis of cancer. We really appreciate the family of Jesus Christ at Westgate and want to thank you for that. When... Karen first met with her oncologist. 
And Kyla just asked the question, what's your greatest concern? In other words, she's asking, what do you fear most about having cancer? Yes, there's fears with it. But that's a great question, not just for us, but it's a great question for all of us because for us to address our fears, we have to understand what those fears are before we can move beyond them. Jan Martel, uh, who wrote the book Life of Pi, uh, wrote, I must say a word about fear. It's life's only true opponent. Only fear can defeat life. It's a clever, treacherous adversary, how well I know. It has no decency, respects no law or convention, shows no mercy. It goes for your weakest spot, which it finds with unnerving ease. It begins in your mind always. So you must fight hard to express it. You must fight hard to shine the light of words upon it. Because if you don't, if your fear becomes a wordless darkness, then you avoid Perhaps even manage to forget you open yourself to further attacks of fear because you never truly fought the opponent who defeated you. Our fears imprison us. We need to get in touch with them. We need to be honest about them. And we need to address them with the Lord, walking with the Lord. We fear cancer, what it might bring, how it'll change our lives. We all have various fears. What what is it you fear most? What is it that begins to debilitate your life? A 2016 study in the Chapman University categorized fears into 11 different domains. There's the fear of crime, murder, rape, theft, There's the economic worries, not having enough money, not being ready for retirement, not having any savings, becoming unemployed. There's environmental concerns, global warming, overpopulation, pollution. There's concerns about the government, government corruption, uh, different measures that are passed, the control that government might gain over us. And of course, illness and death the loss of life, the high medical bills, the pain and suffering when we're ill. There's concern about the immigration and demographic changes, about what's happening in the country, whether we want more immigration or less, and how our lives change. About man-made disasters, bio-warfare, terrorism, nuclear attacks, natural disasters, earthquakes, droughts, floods, hurricanes. Then we have our personal fears, our our phobias. Crowds, public speaking, they list clowns. Uh, Yeah, I know so many fear clowns here. Uh, And then, of course, the fears about relationship. A significant other cheating. The way people view us. Dynamics within our families, our friends. And then they list technology about the future, cyber terrorism, robots, artificial intelligence. There's, there's a lot to fear. What are our fears? 
Fear does have a place in our lives. It should serve as a fire alarm that alerts us that there's something wrong and we have to, we have to do something about it. But we can't live with that constant fire alarm ringing in our heads, disturbing our peace. Let's use fear to awaken us to do what's good and to do what's right. But let us not allow it to debilitate us. When Karen and I are asked, how are you doing? We usually say, okay. What that means is, yeah, we were shocked when we got the news. We had all sorts of imaginations and fears thoughts about the future. But as we draw near to God, those are assuaged. But still, there are those moments when they come back and haunt us. And then they go away for a while, but but they're often in the back of the mind coming back. And we have to struggle with them over and over again. One of the sermons we heard while on sabbatical was a sermon on Psalm 27. And it really helped minister to us because in that psalm, David addresses his fears and talked about his struggles with those fears, but comes out on the end confident in God. And we saw that process at work in our lives, and we realize that it's the way God works in our lives. So that's why we open this morning to Psalm 27. It'll be on the screen, but you might want to follow in your Bibles because of the way it holds together. Let's pray. Our Father, meet us today. May what we hear be more than words. But may your spirit make these words a reality in our lives. Help us to see you, to feel your heartbeat, and to know who you are and that you are here for us. Lead us through this psalm today. Amen. The most superficial advice we could give someone who's going through troubles is trust God. The most profound advice we can give someone going through troubles is trust God. What's the difference? Well, the first is simply words. A Christianese answer. Yeah, just just trust God. I'll pray for you. Trust God. And you come away feeling, or I've often come away feeling like, yeah, but it's not so easy. I begin to feel like maybe I'm disconnected from God. I'm a failure. What's what's wrong with me? Where is God in my life? What am I doing wrong that, that I just can't turn that trust God on in my heart? profound trust God is when someone comes into your life 
is willing to walk with you to trust God, to help you to see God for who he is and, and how he is in your life. And one who knows you are going to struggle with trusting God and will be there to help you back to God. One who is not judging you because you just don't have this perfect peace. That's the journey of David and the journey he's going to take us through in this psalm today. What we see is David in agony. He has real threats around him and commentators can't quite identify what the circumstance was. David went through a number of circumstances in his life where he had threats against him, when Saul sought his life, and Absalom and foreign kings sought his life. It could be one of these, any one of these events. But we don't have to identify it because we can relate. There are all sorts of events in our lives that bring fear. But what we do see in this psalm is three movements. And that's why we had three scripture readers today. In the first six verses, David expresses supreme confidence in God. The Lord's the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That's the attitude we all want to have. It's the attitude that David begins with, but there's a, a change in verse 7 where it seems that fears have gripped David again. In fact, the contrast is so great that there are a number of commentators who think these are two different psalms. They're not. They're really a real experience of confidence and then doubts. And in the third movement, we see David regaining his confidence. And so, in light of these, I can imagine David giving us three pieces of advice. Know God. Struggle with God. Then wait on God. Know God. He begins, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? David's saying, there's no reason to be afraid. Don't you? I, I see who God is. He's my light. He's my salvation. He's my stronghold. He's the safe room in my life where I know no matter what storms are around me, I'm secure. When we were in Alabama, uh, the the youth team went down to Alabama a number of years ago to a tornado-ridden neighborhood. I mean, it was completely obliterated, except for a church that stood in the corner of this large neighborhood. And so we were helping to rebuild houses, and one of the jobs we had was to build a safe room. And man, was that room safe. I mean, the screws were this long, about this far apart, going through two panels of metal, to double, uh, what do they call those things? The, yeah, the struts. And, I mean, into the cement floor. That, the whole house will blow away, but that room will stay. And that's what David says about God. I mean, everything around me can be swirling, but God 
is my stronghold. A mighty fortress is my God, a bulwark never failing. That's what David feels. As Paul said, if God, if the God who created the universe is for us, who can stand against us? When I was in grade school, I often used to get into verbal battles with a, a neighbor who was a couple years older than me, and something would go wrong, and he would say, I'm going to beat you up. And I'd say, whoa, if you beat me up, I'm going to get my brothers, and they will beat you up. And he'd say, yeah, but my brothers are older than your brothers, and they'll beat your brothers up. I say, yes, if they beat my brothers up, I'm going to get my father and my uncles, and they're going to beat up your brothers. And he'd say, yeah, but I'm going to get the police. They're going to beat up your uncles and father. But I'm going to get the army, and they're going to beat the police. And I'm going to get the Marines, the Air Force, and the Navy, and they're going to beat up the army. What if I just said, and I'm going to get God? It's the end of it, isn't it? If God is for us, who is against us? Nothing, no one can stand against God. And said, David knows that, and so God is his stronghold. He knows God will be his deliverer's salvation. And it also says, God is his light. See, in his relationship with God, it's more than being my deliverer, the one who's going to save me. He's my life. He's my light. If somebody said to you, you are the light of my world, what are they saying? They're saying, you're my joy. You're my hope. You're my life. And that's what David is saying here. It's not just about God being a stronghold. He's David's joy. He's David's hope. He's David's life. Why? Because David knows God. So to address our fears, we need to immerse ourselves in the Scripture to, to know God in the deepest level and to know the facets and phases of the beauty and the way he works in life. We need to behold the wonders of God. And then he moves to the next couple of verses. And we see here that David has a hope too because he has looked at the works of God in his life in the past. And he knows if God was there in the past, that same God is here and will be here in the present. Notice 2 and 3. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, and I believe this is past tense, my adversaries and my foes, it's they who stumble and fail. Think about David's life. He goes against the biggest adversary of all, while but a youth, and Goliath. And who's the one who fell? Goliath. And Saul, with all the powerful armies of a king, search out David, want his life. And who's the one who fell in the end? Saul. And Absalom. Foments a coup, takes over, searches out for David's life, and who falls? It's Absalom. 
And so David knows. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. The God who has been there in the past is there today. So often when we have fears, we can look back at the past in previous times we feared and realized God delivered us. God had a purpose that we never understood when we entered it. But we came out the other side. Stronger, better, closer to God. We see the same confidence in Moses at Kadesh Barnea. That God had parted the Red Sea. He brought the Israelites through the wilderness. They come now to the edge of the promised land. Moses sends in 12 scouts to check out the land. They come back and 10 of them say, the cities are unconquerable. The armies are unsaleable. We are going to be slaughtered if we go into the land. And so the people then say, God must hate us. He brought us to this land simply to kill us. He was playing with us all along. You see, they were looking at the circumstances Even though God had worked in the past in their lives, in great ways, they still looked at the current circumstances and that froze them in fear. And so by looking at the circumstances, they then drew a conclusion about God. God hates us. Moses was very different. He looked at God. He saw the character of God and how God walked with them throughout the wilderness, delivered him from Egypt, and he says, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you, just as he did in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way you went up to this place. Moses looked at God, and he drew conclusions about the circumstances. We're going to win the battle. And so we need to know God. We need to know the way he works and how he has worked. And then thirdly, we see that his trials and the fears are times when we draw ever closer to God. That's when... David says here, One thing I've asked of the Lord, and I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He'll conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me and I'll offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I'll sing and make melody in the Lord. And what you see is David is pursuing God. He just wants to be with God. And he knows as he is with God, he can trust God to take care of his enemies. And in the end, he is just going to celebrate and worship and praise God. 
because God has worked in his life. We need to allow our troubles to draw, drive us closer to God. One thing that happens when troubles come is we realize we are not self-sufficient. We need help. And so we, we come closer to God. We cling to God. And that is a great thing. How many of us, how many testimonies have you heard of people who thank God for the biggest troubles in their lives? Paul thanked God for the thorn in his flesh because it taught him the greatest lesson in life. God's grace is sufficient. Johnny Erickson Tata was paralyzed from her shoulders down when she was 18 years old in a diving accident. She calls her paralysis her greatest mercy. Why, she writes, God uses chronic pain and weakness along with other afflictions as his chisel for sculpting our lives. Felt weakness deepens dependency on Christ for strength each day. The weaker we feel, the harder we lean. The harder we lean, the stronger we grow spiritually even while our bodies waste away. Those are not mere words. Those are the experience of a woman paralyzed at the age of 18. The closeness with God is the greatest blessing in her life. And it came because of the troubles. The troubles that come our way not are the curse to drain us of life, they are a blessing to drive us closer to God and to find real life in Him. David had this great confidence in God. What should he fear? Well, there's enemies around him, but he's got God. But in 7 through 12, he begins to waver. And this is where we say we need to know God and we need to struggle with God because the, the doubts are going to come our way. Notice these verses. Even though he still uh, says God's his salvation, he says, I cry aloud. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your anger away from me. Cast me not off. Forsake me not. What happened to that David of confidence? He is wondering now, I want to be with God, but will God be with me? The doubts have come his way. And so we need to learn from him that, that these will come. We need to be honest with God. We can't just brush these concerns away. We'll wrestle with God in it. But he begins this section by saying, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. So he's crying out to God, Be gracious to me. Answer me. What do you do without you pray? And then he says, Lord, You've said to me in my heart, 
I've cried out to you and your answer has been, seek my face. Back to the beginning, isn't it? We need to know God. We need to go back and see who God is. But more than that, we need to look at his face. See, because in a person's face, we see what people feel about us. Are they angry with us? Are they frustrated with us? Have they given up on us? Are they fed up with us? Are they happy with us? Are we a joy to them? Do we see the love in his face? And God says, look at my face. Don't you see love? Don't you see compassion? Don't you see me feeling your pain with you? That's what we can deduce when he says, we can deduce from the fact that God says, look at my face. And David says, yeah, I'm looking at your face. I, I will look at your face. So don't hide it from me. So, so David's afraid that God will abandon him. He knows if God's with him, he's all set. But, but will God really stay with him? Is God really there for him? And so he says, don't hide your face from me. God, are you really there for me? I need you. Are you real? Can I count on you? Turn not your servant away in anger. Perhaps, God, you, you really won't be there for me because you're angry with that. There's plenty of reasons for you to be angry with me. I'm a sinner. And I keep sinning. I keep going my way. I, I cast you off the throne of my life. And, and now I come crawling to you for help when I haven't paid much attention to you before? That's hypocritical. I could see why you'd be angry with me. God, don't be angry with me. Cast me not off. I, I know I'm a burden. There's, there's bigger problems in, in, in the world for you to deal with. You're a big God and I'm just a little me. But God, don't, don't cast me aside. And don't forsake me. See, we're all set as long as we know God is there. But the doubts arise. Are, are you really going to be there, God? And then he says, For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will Take me in. He has confidence now. He's returned to confidence that God's going to be there for him. But it's interesting how he points to my father and my mother may forsake me. You see, because very often we judge our understanding of God based on people. You know, it's often been said that we get our emotional understanding of God from our fathers or from our dominant parent. God is not like people. 
If you have been forsaken by people, don't think God will forsake you. He is very different from our fathers. Remember the prodigal son? And the son returns. He's ready, ready to beg his father to, to just give him a job to come back. And, you know, I know if I was the father, I'd see my son coming and I said, okay, I'm going to make him pay for this. I'm going to give him a good, stern lecture. I'm going to tell him all his failings. And then I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to set him up to make sure he works and earns his way back. And then I'll, I'll receive him back. But that isn't the father of the prodigal son. It's a father who's waiting and waiting. He rushes out to him and he embraces him in all his filth and squalor and sin and throws a party for him. God is not like people. And David realizes that here and so he now has confidence. The Lord will take me in. We can't stop the doubts, the waves of doubts from crashing upon us, receding, and then coming back and crashing upon us again. It's going to happen. But we can we seek the Lord in those times. And as David finally regains his footing in verses 11 and 12, he says, Teach me your ways, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries for false witnesses have arisen against me and they breathe out violence. And so they're still there. The enemies are still there. But David, as he's regaining his confidence, what does he want? He wants the Lord to teach him God's way and put him on a level path. God's way speaks to God's moral way. David is saying, I want to do what is right before you. The level path is the successful way. I want to know how to navigate this minefield of my adversaries. It isn't about simply trusting God. It's about using that experience to draw near to God and then to sit at God's feet and to unite ourselves with God's ways. And in that way, we glorify God. At the same time, we want to do what's right and we want to do what's wise. And we need to learn from God, not from people. Because when problems come, when we are deserted by others, when catastrophes happen, when we don't get our way, we usually don't respond too well. Don't learn from people. But Christ endured all of these. That's the one we learn from. He walked in God's ways. He navigated the minefields that led to the cross, which led to the resurrection. So David is returning after a roller coaster ride of emotions and fears faith and fears he finally arrives with confidence again and we read in 13 13 and 14 
I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then he encourages us. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. You wait for the Lord. First part is, David is now saying, okay, God, as I know you, as I've struggled with you, as I'm coming out the other side, I know that I'm going to see your goodness in the land of living. I'm going to, I know you're going to be my deliverer right now. I'm going to see, he doesn't say your victory, he says your goodness. Because that's the critical component that we need to know about God. God is good. Three things we need to know about God in troubles. One, he's almighty. He can do anything. He can deliver us. Two, he's good. That he wants to deliver us. He's on our side. And three, he can do it. He wants to do it. And he knows how to do it. We usually don't struggle. If we believe with God, we don't really struggle with that God is all-powerful. He can do anything. And he created the universe. We think we don't struggle with his wisdom. We say, we, we understand that he, the creator, he knows everything. He knows much better than we do, but our complaints belie that type of belief. We seem to say, God, you should be doing it this way, but by and large, we believe God's wise. The question becomes, is God good? David wrestled with it. Don't forsake me. Will you really be there? If you are, I'm okay. If you're not, I'm in big trouble. The religious question that is most asked is, why would a good, loving God allow such suffering and evil? What's that question about? It's really about the goodness of God. If there was a good God, there wouldn't be all this suffering and evil and pain, all these tragedies and catastrophes. So therefore, there must not be a good God. That's where we struggle. And when we look at various circumstances in our lives, we can struggle. When I look at the, what's happened in my life, if I look at those things, I can wonder, God, are you really there? My, my mother died of leukemia when I was one years old. My brother, who had been rebellious, he came to the Lord a year later. He dies in a motorcycle accident on his 22nd birthday. I come to Christ. My father's struggling with that faith, but I, I, I know that I can speak into his life not when I learn more. And three months later, he dies of a heart attack. We go on a church retreat. Uh, one of our youth drowns in an accident. I've been beside young mothers who died of cancer. It goes on and on. If I look at the circumstances, I can wonder, God, are you there? But there's other circumstances I can look and say, yeah, but you are there. 
But there's one place where I gain all my confidence in God's goodness, and that is at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. When I go to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, and I hear Jesus Christ saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When I realize that he's dying on the cross for my sin, I can't doubt the goodness of God. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. What do you feel when you you read the story about a mother in a tornado who who shelters her daughter from the storm and dies so she can save her daughter's life? Or the young man who throws himself and covers his girlfriend when the madman is firing away and shoots him and not her. We say, that's love. Do we feel that when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ? God demonstrates his love toward us that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's one circumstance to look at when we have our doubts and fears. And that's the cross of Jesus Christ that covers all of history. And so David has that confidence in the goodness of God. He knows things are going to work out. And so he says, people, wait on the Lord. Now, he's not talking about like waiting for a bus to come. You know, spend some time twiddling your thumbs uh, before the Lord works. He's talking about active waiting, like a child waiting for Christmas. They're just anticipating Christmas. They're asking, how how many days till Christmas? And they're helping to put the stamps on the Christmas cards, or they're writing their own, or they're preparing presents, or they're involved in the, the school plays, and all sorts of things they're doing. But all along in their mind, they're thinking, Christmas is coming, Christmas is coming. It's like the woman who is pregnant waiting for the birth of her daughter or son. She endures a lot, right? You get morning sickness. Your body changes. You have to start thinking about what's preparing. You go out and buy the cribs and the onesies. And you you talk about your dreams and what what you're going to do when the baby's born with your husband. You're you're doing all sorts of preparations. You're anticipating the labor. You hear the horror stories about them. But you keep thinking, but when the baby comes, I'm going to have a cherished gift. I'm bringing life into the world to love and to be loved by. And so we work in full anticipation and joy of the end result. And God says, that's what to do, wait. Wait knowing that I work all things together for good. Those who love and called according to the purpose. We can trust God. He's in control. He's good. Wait on the Lord. Trust.
Our Father, we thank you for people like Johnny Erickson, people like David, who've gone before us, who've experienced you fully. I pray, Lord, that as we go through trials, as Karen and I go through this trial of cancer, we will draw ever closer to you. We will know you more fully to trust you. And that when the crisis of fear comes into our lives, we will seek your face and we will see your face. Lord, bring us out to the end. Bring us out through the end, waiting on you, knowing, wanting to know your ways and how to walk in a way that will glorify you Show our neighborhood, show our workers, the people we work with, the glory of God and how he comes alongside those he loves. In Christ we pray, amen.